and we've marked it and celebrated it and stayed up late and then regretted how late we stayed up because the kids woke up at five. Um, but uh, who knows what this fresh rotation around the sun will be, will bring for us this fresh year. I'm hoping as a church that this year will bring us the purchase of our own building. Yeah, yeah that would be nice, yeah. wouldn't it? Come on. Um, which last year we're supposed to do as well. <laughs> Uh, we did actually hear back from Manchester Methodist head office who've been processing our building to reassure us that it will be completed by the end of March. So we'll take that. We'll take that in faith and trust them in their way. So yes, we can give, give thanks for that. Um, so today I'm talking about small town Jesus. We love the small town that we're in. Jesus was a small town man and the United Kingdom is a nation of small towns. Um, There are 7,339 towns, to be precise, in the UK, and only 411 of them are bigger than 25,000 people in population. And Seaford is one of those towns, which I suppose these days it's it's more like 27,000, but we still call it a small town. Uh, Seaford is uh, is home to many illustrious and important people, and the towns that we come from are. We made the news twice nationally in the past year with our dramatic cliff falls and mysterious toxic gases. Uh, <laughs> who knows what that's no one really knows what it was about still do they just like we just had a bad day where everything smelt and people went to hospital because it smelt so bad but we're not really sure why and we can't stop it happening again but for a while people were worried that ISIS <laughs> were invading Seaford uh, it was like the Battle of Hastings all over again uh, except just a few miles down the coast um, the populations of our, of our three towns that are largely represented in the room today Seaford, New Haven and Peace Haven added up together and make 53,000 people And uh, we as a church love all of them. We believe that God has put us here to bless them, to be a blessing to them. And today I want to talk about how we might love them all the more. Uh, We're talking about small town Jesus, love Seaford. And today I want to issue you with two challenges. We're going to read something from the Old Testament in a bit. And I'm going to issue you with two challenges for the year ahead. And they both begin with the same letter because I'm a preacher and it's easier to remember that way. But we'll get to them in a sec. The first thing I'm going to do though is ask you a question. A difficult question that you're not necessarily going to be able to answer on the spot. Here it is. In the last 10 years in your life, what do you wish that you hadn't quit on or given up on that you have done? What is there in the last 10 years in your life that you've stopped doing or you've quit that you wish you hadn't quit or stopped doing? Uh, Maybe it's playing the piano. You told yourself you'd play the piano and you did it for a couple of days uh, or a couple of weeks. Or maybe you said you'd learn French. I think every year for the past how many years that's been my New Year's resolution. Learn French. I still just know GCSE French. Um, C grade. Thank you very much. So I still can get by. Um, I don't know what it is for you. Uh, Maybe there was a relationship in the last 10 years that you've quit on and you wish you hadn't or a job that you wish you hadn't quit on but you had. Or maybe Maybe it's just quitting on God in the last 10 years. Your spiritual life, maybe you're further from God than you'd like to be. Living as a Christian is hard, and um, God makes demands of us to trust him. In a society where a lot of people don't believe in him, uh, or they say they don't believe in him, the challenge for us is to to keep trusting him. But maybe for you, you felt God made some requests of you, asked you to trust him in some particular areas of your life, and you thought, you know what, that's just too hard. I can't do that. And you quit. And maybe that's partly the reason why you're here. You think, New Year, I'm going to, New Resolution, New Year's Resolution or whatever, or maybe not a resolution as such. I just want to give God a go again. I want to see if there's something more to life than what I've been living and, and knowing for the past few years. 
The reality is that staying power, the ability not to quit, is what's needed to achieve anything worthwhile in life. Um, I've only been a dad for seven years, but there's been many times in those seven years where I've just wanted to quit. And I've said to Amy, we've got three kids, but should we go back to two? <laughs> you can't do that. That was just a joke. We're not actually going to do that. Um, but there was a man in the, in the, what is it? I think I didn't write this down, the 18th century, 19th century, Jonathan Edwards, um, who uh, age 19 wrote down 70 resolutions, things that he reread every day or at least every week throughout his life to remind himself of the resolves and the resolutions that he's made. And they were better resolutions than learn French or play the piano. Uh, one of the resolutions, which is quite interesting, uh, shows the, uh, the era that he was born in. He said, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances that attend to death. It's an interesting resolution. Um, but here's another one that we can perhaps relate to a little bit more. Whenever I hear anything spoken in conversation of any person that I think would be praiseworthy in me, resolve to endeavor to imitate that. That's a good resolution. We can adopt that one. Our day and age is not known for being, we're not, I say my generation, our our age, um, we're not known for being good at sticking at things. We're Quitters, I think in the last few decades, the word gamophobia has been invented to describe that. Gamophobia is the fear of commitment, the fear of commitment, which is a problem when you consider that staying power is needed. Um, if you're to achieve anything that's worth achieving in life, we need to learn how not to quit. Last year, uh, last term, we were going through a New Testament book the letter to the Galatians and there's a verse in it right at the end that we kind of skimmed over a little bit with the apostle Paul the writers of the church there he says do not grow weary in doing good for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up if you don't give up why the temptation to quit is so strong so he needed to write that and we need to remind one another at the beginning of this year don't give up don't quit. As much as we give thanks to God for everything that happened last year, or we talk about what happened in 2017, mixture of good, mixture of bad. For a number of us, 2017 was just full of surprises that enabled, that meant that we need to learn to dig in deep and just endure. I think particularly the latter half of the year as a church, we experienced a lot of pressure in different personal lives that meant that we as a church need to learn to just endure, to dig in, to press into God, to hold on to Him. One of my favorite bits in the New Testament is when Jesus is preaching this sermon, and He's got lots and lots of followers. He's very popular. Everyone's traveling to hear the new preacher. And then He kind of preaches a sermon that's a little, not just bad, it's kind of weird. He, he says, my body is, is like real food, and my blood is real drink. You need to eat my body and drink my blood. At which point, most people went, yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> I, find, I find another guru to follow. And after, that, after everyone had left, Jesus' 12 were gathered, and he said to them, would you want to quit as well? You, you're free to go. And Peter said to him, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can echo that sentiment, can't we? Well, not just in the Christian life, in life in general. We say, where else can I go? What else offers me the hope that you offer? So we're going to read from the Old Testament. Um, the letter or the letter or the prophetic book called Jeremiah, written by an Old Testament prophet. We're going to read seven verses from it. I'll read it and comment on it, and we'll see what God has to say to us through his word together this morning. This is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verses 1 to 7. This 
is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the craftsmen had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisar, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, it said. So this is the scene set. This is Jeremiah saying, I'm about to write a letter, and I'm writing the letter to these people who are, he says, in exile. Um, In their day, as in ours, there was displacement as a result of war. And God's people, the people of the Old Testament, the Israelites, um, were experiencing a period, a time of displacement, known as the exile, where many of the, the leaders and rulers of God's people had been carried off by their enemies from the country that they, they lived in over to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And so Jerusalem is left without its leaders, without its officials, without those who knew what to do and how to run the country. And Jeremiah, the prophet, sees this, the state that he's living in, um, Jerusalem rudderless and in desperate need of help, um, all of its leaders living among their enemies, and he picks up his pen, like Mr. Popper's penguins, and, <laughs> sorry, and um, writes a letter to them. The question is, what will he say? If you were Jeremiah writing to people in that position, what would you say? Run away or escape as quick as you can and get back here because we need you. We are in dire need of our leaders and those who know what to do. Or would you say, it's not long now, hold on, the end is coming and God will deliver you. Or would you say, can you make sure you set up a Western Union account and send some money back because we're really struggling? Or you could say, endure it, but don't allow it to influence you. Whatever you do, don't start eating potatoes at every dinner and stop, and don't ever start saying sorry and thank you at every opportunity you can. And whatever you do, please don't start confusing supper with tea. Those of us non-English people understand that. Um, Our equivalent today, we're unlikely to experience displacement by war um, in Seaford. But for you, it might not look like that. It it might look like the fact that your life has changed dramatically in the last few months. And all the plans that you had made for the future have had to be shelved and changed. Or you might have felt called by God into something, a particular ministry or job or a relationship. But instead of living in a calling and going, I'm living for God, you now find yourself sidelined, isolated, confused, staring at your life going, what is going on? And it's to people like that that the prophet picks up his pen and he writes to them these words. Thus says the Lord Almighty. This is, I mean, everyone, if you're not a church person, you've heard that phrase, haven't you? Thus saith the Lord. This is the wild-eyed prophet moment. Here it comes. Thus saith the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. He says, to those I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Hold on a minute. Those I sent into exile. I have a question for God when I read this. Did you do this? (laughs) These people, this country are in dire need of help. People have been killed and people have been carried off as a result of war. Did you do this? I thought it was the devil. I thought it was the sword. I thought it was these evil, wicked men who came to do this to us. Does God inflict difficulty on people? That's what's forced into my mind at the beginning of Jeremiah's statement. Thus says the Lord, those those that I sent into exile... Does God inflict difficulty on you? We have a, quite a sentimental view of God, but this is when, th- when bad things happen in your life, it's either the result of 
um, your own foolish decisions, right? It's, it's either the result or of someone else's sin. You're a victim of what someone else has done to you. Or it's the result of living under the fool. We live in a broken, cursed, destructive world. And that's true when bad things happen. But the Bible also steps back and sees things from a bigger picture and says, actually, in everything, God is always aware. God is always using what goes on. God is always in control. More than that, God is actually always in overall charge of your life. Which on first statement sounds quite hard. So God's in charge of what's going on when things I go through difficulty? And the answer is yes, which can feel painful. But actually, who else would you rather be in charge of chaos? It's God, and it's not chaotic at all. He's able to use it for his plans and purposes. This is what he says to them, though, to those that he sent into exile. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's what he says. That's his encouragement. The outset of his letter to these people in difficulty, he says, just build a house and live there, plant a garden, have kids, and pray for the prosperity of the place you're in. Which is not what you would expect him to have said. It's God's plan becomes clear for these people. He intends for them to be priests to the country that he sent them to. He wants them to help their enemies prosper. He doesn't want them to live in a a divisive way. He wants them to serve the people that they live in. He wants them not just to serve them, but to seek out the prosperity and peace and blessing of the country and the situation they find themselves in. This isn't a hope for the best, tolerate your situation statement. This is a... Be intentional. This place is to prosper because you're in it and you're to seek out for it. In that statement, the prophet lays the foundations for Jesus' words in the New Testament when he taught us. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, we want our problems gone. We want to blame our problems on, you know, the devil and want them to just go away altogether. But God says, I'm able to use these problems for your good. And in those situations, I want you to behave like this. Seek out and pursue the prosperity and the peace and pray for it. And That's what he says to them. And that's nice. That's the Old Testament, 15, written 1,500 years ago or so. What's the relevancy to us? We're living in Seafood. We don't live in Babylon or Iraq. or We haven't been displayed. We're not refugees. And the link is this. We are like them. If you're a Christian this morning, the Bible says that you are an exile. You are living in exile. You are an outsider to the world. You are living in an alternative kingdom with alternative values, with a different king on the throne, namely Jesus. And so often you see in the New Testament instructions written to exiles, to aliens, to strangers, to those who aren't at home in this present world. And so we are like them. And to those of us then, living as Christians in modern day society in Seaford, the encouragement's the same. The instructions from God would be the same for us. And that's seek out the good of the town that you live in. Seek out and pursue the prosperity and peace. Pray for the place that you live. Love it. 
Don't just leave it to our bins to tell us to love where you live. Instead, the church, Christians, ought to be those who are pursuing and seeking it out. And several months ago, we introduced the the idea of small town Jesus and said, this is how we're to live. We're to be good locals. We're to walk, talk, and mix. And so the question comes, how are we doing with that? It's a few months on from there. Are you shopping locally more? Um, Are you speaking positively about the place that you live? Are you praying for your town more? Have you spoken to your neighbors? Has anyone said of you that you should become the mayor because you love this place so much? There's a need for us to be intentional. And intentionality doesn't happen by accident. So the question for this morning, before we get to the two challenges, the question is, how do we seek the good? What does it look like to seek the good of the place that we live? In Jeremiah 29 that we read, I love how, how very earthy and practical God's instructions are to his people. He doesn't say build monasteries, hide in the hills, and just pray and pray and pray and do nothing else. He says, if you want to live a radical life, I mean really radical for God, build a house and live in it, plant a garden and eat the food from it. (laughs) Sorry, what? (laughs) That doesn't sound very radical to me. But it is. To live in and to love the place that you're in and to become a partner with the people around you but live by a different value system uh, with allegiance to a different king is a radical way to behave. Do you live in the same town, same world as the town that you live in? Are you concerned about the same issues as your neighbors? Do you watch the same things on TV or read the same books or listen to the same music? Churches often fallen, have fallen into um, two errors. On the one hand, you have churches that behave like they're a bomb shelter and they just hide away from the towns that they're in because they're evil and they're full of people who don't believe the same things as us. And so churches become like this kind of exclusive club that's very hard to join and very hard to find because they just hide away. Or they use language of them and us. We're the goodies, they're the baddies. Keep away from the baddies, make sure you're with the goodies. Which is a a false narrative anyway because according to Jesus, it's the baddies that need the church, not the goodies. And so if you're in the church, you're a baddie. Well done for being here. Um, But you can either operate as though church is a bomb shelter, hide away from the world, or the, the... opposite equal and opposite error of many churches is that they become like mirrors to the society around them that they just look the same as everybody else they walk the same they talk the same they engage all the same activities they believe largely the same things and if you were to walk into a church you go i this i could be in any club in the town there's no difference here and those are the errors that churches can fall into and instead the radical thing to do is to walk the the middle road is to build a house and to live in it, to plant a garden, to eat the produce from it, to go to Morrison's or Tesco's or whatever your tipple of choice is and behave like that. It's very easy in marriage. I, my observation um, from talking to lots of different people is very easy for married couples to drift apart over the years uh, as their interests change, their TV habits change, their hobbies change and some people have said that they they wake up one day after 30 years of marriage and they realize they don't have anything in common with their spouse it's a difficulty it's a a difficult time for marriages when that happens but love always seeks out and finds common interests love is willing to do that missionaries 
when they go visit a foreign land and arrive to tell people the message of the gospel, they behave in a certain number of ways. They learn the language. They learn the customs of the people that they live around. They un- try to understand the symbols of the world that they're now surrounded by. And as Christians, we are living in a society where the, the good news message of Jesus is foreign to most people. The gospel, the church, is a foreign environment for most people. And if we love people, we're willing to find as many common interests as we can to ensure that we don't become a bomb shelter and to ensure that we don't become a mirror but remain the people of God, the people that God has called us as a church to be. I I still remember my first few visits to churches uh, as a non-Christian growing up in a a town similar to Seaford. And... um, we, I used to go to an Anglican church, uh, Church of England church, and um, halfway through the service, they would say, let us offer the peace to one another. And I would think, what on earth is the peace? I didn't bring any peace with me. How do I do this? But it's okay, because I quickly copied everybody else. They turn around and shake hands with someone and say, may, the peace, may peace be with you. And I thought, this is like Jedi's. May the force be with you. This is so exciting. May the, may the peace, peace be with you or something. Or, or, or what would happen is that someone would read from the Bible and at the end of reading from the Bible they would say, this is the word of God and all the congregation would say, thanks be to God. Thank you, Rodney, you know it. They say, thanks be to God, except rather like what just happened here. Most people wouldn't really say it with much gusto. So it would go, this is the word of God. <laughs> For years I was like, what do they do at that point in the service? And uh, there's many other examples like that. I'm sure you've had your own, even in coming to here. They raise their arms and sing and they move around. And what are they doing, these strange people? It's a foreign experience. And so we, as the church, because we love those around us, or we're called to love those around us, need to behave in a way that helps people to understand what on earth we're doing. You know, 66% or 60%, say, of under 30s in the UK the chances are that they do not know a Christian. The chances are high that they don't understand the first thing about what Christianity is. 60%, that's almost two-thirds of people under the age of 30. A friend of mine who's planting a church near Cambridge, he said he was out on the street one day and um, approached some young guys in their 20s, and he said he was talking to them about church, and he said, can I just tell you a quick story? He said, um, two men went to build a house. One built their house on the sand and the other built their house on solid rock. Do you know where I'm going with this story? And they were like, no, a story about masonry? (laughs) What is this? Um, um, If if you're not familiar with church, you too would be sitting there going, I don't know where the story's going either. So he told them, Jesus said, those who build their lives on his teaching are like those who build their lives on rock. Those who don't are like those who build their lives on sand. When storms come, and storms come to both of those houses, the only house that survives in Jesus' teaching is that house. But it's just interesting for us. Christians are meant to seek out the good and the prosperity of the place that they live by understanding the context and culture they're in and trying as much as we can to help people to understand it. Polly brought a challenge to us before Christmas Um, where she very helpfully said that carrying other people's burdens doesn't begin when you have it all together yourself. It doesn't begin when your life is easy. We are those who get our lives in order together as we go through life together, helping one another with our burdens, strengthening each other. And the reality is it's much easier to just assimilate and become a mirror. It's much easier to just 
become obsessed with acceptance or my own personal comfort or my house. It's much easier to just behave like everyone else. I know because I, I face that same challenge myself. And that's why belonging to the people of God is so important for us. Because every Sunday we come and we sit under the good news message of Jesus and we allow him to challenge us and change us and over time shape us. Okay, two quick challenges then. Two quick challenges for 2018. Here we are. Number one, pray. Number two, play. Number one, pray. Number two, play. I'll explain. See, they begin with P and they're easy. Pray and play. Pray and play. There we go. The first one is pray. In 2018, prayer is significant for us. It's significant for us because when you pray, your eyes are open to the world that you live in. And over the last year as a church, we've seen a lot of um, significant growth just in the way that we pray together. Our prayer group every fortnight on a Wednesday has become a very successful and well-attended group. People are hungry for God in prayer, and that's encouraging for us as a church. Let me read a, a, a rather dramatic story of what happened to one man when he started praying for something every day. This is a man named Bob. It's a story about Bob and his friend called Doug in the States. Um, Bob was an insurance salesman who became a Christian through a friendship with Doug. Upon discovering a statement in the Bible one day where Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, you shall receive it, Bob got excited. Is it true, he said. His friend Doug said, well, you know, it's not like a catch-all term for a new car or anything, but yeah, when you pray for something in the name of Jesus and his will, it's true. And Doug said, then I've got to start praying for something, something big. He said, I think I'll pray for Africa. That's kind of a big target, Doug said. Uh, why don't you narrow it down to one country? So, Doug, so, so Bob said, all right, I'll pray for Kenya. Do you know anyone in Kenya? Doug said, no. You ever been to Kenya? No, just want to pray for Kenya. So he started praying for Kenya. So Doug made this unusual arrangement with his friend Bob. He said, if you pray every day for Kenya for six months and nothing happens, I'll give you $500. But if something does happen, you have to give me $500. And if you don't pray every day, then the deal's off. How about that? That's quite a good bargain, isn't it? What if we said, I'll give you a cup of coffee if you pray for something every day for three months and see what the Lord does? Anyway, Bob began to pray. And for a long time, nothing happened. And then one night, he was at a dinner in Washington. And the people around the table explained what they did for a living. One woman said that she helped to run an orphanage in Kenya, the largest of its kind. Bob saw $500 suddenly sprout wings and fly away. But he couldn't keep quiet. Bob roared to life. He had not said much up until this point, and now he pounded her relentlessly with question after question. You're obviously very interested in my country, the woman said to Bob. Have you been to Kenya before? No, he said. Do you know someone in Kenya? No. Eventually, she asked Bob if he'd like to come visit Kenya and tour the orphanage. Bob said yes. When Bob arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty and the lack of basic health care. Upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get the place out of his mind. He began to write large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need he had seen, and reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. Why not send these to this place in Kenya, he said. And some of them did. This orphanage received more than a million dollars worth of medical supplies. So the woman called Bob up one day and said, This is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters that you wrote. Would you like to fly back over again and have a big party? We'd like to host you. So Bob flew back to Kenya. While he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country. And he offered to take Bob of a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. 
In the course of the tour, they saw a prison. Bob asked about a a group of prisoners there, and the president said, they're political prisoners. So Bob said, that's a bad idea. You should let them go. Bob finished the tour and flew back home. Sometime later, Bob received a phone call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What did you say? I told him he should let them go. Then the State Department uh, official explained that they had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners, all to no avail. Normal diplomatic channels and political manoeuvrings had led to a dead end. But now the prisoners had been released and the State Department was told it had been because of Bob. So the government was calling to say thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, who was not politically connected at all, boarded a plane once more and flew back to Kenya where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom to the leader of the nation as he selected his government. All this happened because one man thought it would be fun to pray for something. Why not give it a go? It's amazing, isn't it? Now, I won't offer you $500, but I will buy you a cup of coffee if something happens. <laughs> Why not pray for someone to invite to our Alpha course uh, this term? Every day between now and it's time, pray. Who can I invite? Who could I just share the good news message of Jesus with and see what God will do as a result of your prayers? So that's the first one. Pray. We need to pray. As, as Jerry helpfully reminded us in the worship times, it's important that we pray together as a church. The second thing is to play. On your seats or at the back, your tokens, whatever, you'll have seen our Love Seaford tokens. And if you're from New Haven or Peace Haven, sorry that they don't say your town. But you can still play nonetheless just without a token. Play with us. Join in with our Love Seaford initiative. I don't know if you've seen Seaford scene this month, um, but we're in there. Last year, we preached a message on relational generosity. I made the point that all of us in our relationships have kind of accounts of generosity with one another and when we do things good it's like an addition to the account when we do something generous when we do something unkind it's like a withdrawal from the account and we challenge one another let's be those who are outwardly looking to bless and show generosity to other people and so we turned that into a concept and now this year we wanted to roll that out all the more and so we've contacted a school, we're getting the tokens into there, they're in a coffee shop in the town, we've invited the town to play, and we've got 2,000 of these tokens made up, which I will be finding around my house for the next year if you guys don't play, so please do play. Um, and on, our, on the cards that are attached to these tokens, we've said, this is essentially a random act of kindness initiative. Why not do something random and kind for someone else and see how far it goes? And just off the top of our heads, we thought of four different ways that you can play. You can play by being a ninja, which, you know, appeals to some of us. You can be a ninja. And ninja kindness looks like doing something mysterious and unknown to anybody else and leave a token along with it. So last year, we, I took my kids out into the town and we just attached some tokens to two-pound coins and just left them around the town as we went. And they loved it. They got caught up in the idea as well. Uh, we had people last year, the youth group, I think, went out. Uh, we put the photos up, some ideas. The youth group going out and delivering some chocolate bars with, um, put the next slide up, John. Uh, chocolate, oh, I can't really see them, sorry, it's a bit small. But chocolate bars with tokens on them, or um, people were attaching them to Amazon vouchers uh, or freshly baked goods. Um, we even gave some as a, as a ninja to the receptionists at a local school with a bunch of flowers that got into the school newsletter, and then they were playing as well. 
January is a dark month. It's in February. It's the hardest part of the, the British winter. So we want to be generous in January. We want to try to brighten people's Januaries with a little bit of kindness. You can be a ninja or you can be a hero. Step into someone in need. Offer to pay for someone's shopping and give them a token at the same time, like a mysterious calling card. Um, or if someone breaks down, you can help them. Or, I don't know, be a hero. Come to someone's aid who's in need. Be a good friend for someone. Um, or just randomly, you could post on your Facebook page, anybody want a babysitter for tonight? Or anybody want a free takeaway tonight? And give them it with a toe. I don't know what it is. But we want to be known in the town for being people who love the place that we live. And one of the ways that we can do that is just by playing with this little game here. Uh, or if you want, we'd love some people to join us on a giveaway in the town one Saturday. Just come out with us with a blue jacket on and just give some of these tokens out. Just give away some chocolate bars and tokens on them. I don't know whatever we're going to do. But if you are willing to play and you'd like to do that, please come and speak to myself because we want to get a group of people out in the town just showing generosity and showing kindness to the town. So those are, two, those are the challenges of 2018. To pray for the town, to pray for your neighbours, to pray for the people that you love. Every day, commit to yourself for, let's just say, three months, between now and Easter. See if you can do that. And then the second challenge is to play, to join in with our love Seaford, and let's see what God will do as a result of it. We've had stories of people completely unconnected to the church, joining in with the activities, posting it on social media, and it being passed forward to different households and different people. Uh, we've had some very encouraging stories, particularly over in Eastbourne, of people turning up to the church as a result of the Love Seaford thing. But it's not necessarily or primarily about trying to get people into the church. It's about seeking the prosperity of the place that we live. It's looking to bless people and to share God's heart with people. Now, seeking the good, loving Seaford requires intentionality. Um, and maybe being intentional with how you befriend and love people this year is something you struggle with. Why don't you join our Walk Across the Room group that we're running? It's a shorter group of just six weeks, and you can sign up in the Belong Leaflet. Come and watch a f DVD. Come and talk about how we can love the town and grow in how we are intentionally looking to reach people. It's just a, a little, another small way that you can engage in 2018. The, the gospel message and the reason that the people Jeremiah was writing to could have hope and engage in this activity of seeking the prosperity was because they were living by a different value system than the world around them. See, for most people to be displaced and living in a Living in the, the land of your enemies, oppressed and being victims of a, of a wicked regime is enough to destroy you, to rob you of all, all your hope. But not for them, because they knew that they had a hope that wasn't ultimately on this earth, but was instead with him. We have a God who forgives us for our wickedness, our wrongdoing, for our sin. We have a God who adopts us into his family He's a God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. He's a God who's always there with outstretched arm. He's the God of the prodigal son story, the father who's waiting for anyone who would look to return to him. And then he runs to greet him. Ultimately, Christianity is about a God who seeks people, whoever they are, whether Babylonians or Sephorians or Christians. God seeks us out, forgives us, adopts us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He gives us courage and boldness where we're weak and timid. He puts us in a church community that's supposed to be like a second family for us. 
You know, the most formative experience of your life is the family that you're born into. You have the quirks you do because of the family that you're born into. Well, the church is the second family, the people of God, who are equally meant to shape us and change us and help us cope with life's pressures and difficulties and walk through life with us. In 2 Timothy, at the end of the letter, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, who's a man who's aspiring to leadership in the church, and he says, endure suffering. Whoever you are, life will cause you to suffer in some way, but God puts you within the people of God, the church, to walk alongside you to enable you to endure suffering. Not to like suffering, not to laugh at suffering, not to be delivered from suffering, but to endure it with the help of your second family, the church. And so together, as a church, we're in 2018, we're to use the gifts that God has given us to seek the good of this town, to love Seaford, to pray for Seaford, and to play in random acts of kindness and looking to bless this town. Let me pray for us, and then perhaps the band can rejoin us for a song of response to God. Heavenly Father, thank you that you, though we are exiles and though we're misfits in this society, you are with us. And as a result of that, God, we have found home with you. Home isn't a place, it's a person. God, we'll always feel like we're discontent and dissatisfied in this life. But when we turn to you, we find peace, we find prosperity, we find help to endure suffering. I pray for us as a church, Lord, that in this year ahead for us, that we'd be people who dig into prayer and we'd be people, God, who look to pray for the prosperity of the town that we're in, that we'd seek the good for the people around us. Father, we confess that we are weak and unable to bring about change by ourselves. We need you and we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.